the big breakdown of Morrison's Band-Aid budget, and the good news is about fish in the Barker Darling River. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am Ben Davison, and joining me, as always, is the lovely, the ever-present, sometimes Wagga Wagga resident... (laughs) We are in Wagga, that is true, but I brought Ben with me this time, which is quite exciting. And we have Nathan, who is our Wagga Wagga producer with us as well. And a big thank you to Nathan for joining us for this early morning edition of The Week on Wednesday. Normally, we do come at you in the afternoon with the whole day's events to talk about, but because of the huge Morrison Band-Aid budget announcement last night... Biggest Band-Aid ever. Yeah, and it's like they kind of bought the off-brand one too, you know. So anyway, we'll get into that this morning, but uh, we, we did want to get this out to you as soon as we possibly could. And can I just say, it is actually really lovely here in Wagga Wagga. Yes, I've been telling you this for months. So I'm glad you finally got in the car and came and saw how beautiful it is. Ben's been playing with the kangaroos and taking photos of trees and just loving the galahs. So it has been amazing. And a big thank you to all the people of Wagga Wagga who really have just been so welcoming. It's been uh, an amazing, an amazing trip, but I will be going home soon. So <laughs> I know. <laughs> So, look, let's get into the budget van. So, Frydenberg got up at 7.30 last night and delivered the annual budget speech. And we watched it so you didn't have to. And I have to say, it's quite underwhelming. There was a lot of ramp up to this budget we're about spending and new investments in aged care oh and we're just going to spend all this money and spend 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 but it's what are you spending it on and is it well spent so just from the outset ben and i love budgets that spend money because ben and i have this crazy evidence-based understanding of how economies work and the fact that if you target investment towards industry and you create directly create jobs you actually create sustainable economies like you know, Australia's from the Second World War until 1975. And you start to see a bit of return to the pre-inflation is the biggest problem in the budget kind of mentality that existed prior to 1975. And you heard, we've heard Frydenberg talk about the importance of employment. The really interesting and problematic thing about this budget is that when you get beyond the headlines into the detail, you don't we don't actually get to where they say we're going to go. So unemployment remains relatively high. Underemployment remains relatively high. Wages not only remain low, but actually will go backwards in real terms over the next couple of years. This is not the kind of full employment budget that we would have seen in the 60s or the 70s, or even really the kind of big investment budgets that we saw after the GFC. Yeah, or the big infrastructure budgets that we saw in the 1980s that built up institutions and created jobs. So we've got had a lot of talk from Morrison about what they're planning on doing, but it's not really big picture. Like the problem with this budget is that a lot of money is being spent, but sort of on these sort of weak attempts to put out spot fires. And we'll go through some of those because it's like we've sat down and gone, 
it's like they've focus grouped it and gone, what are Australians' issues? And it's like, oh, well, some of them have, uh, you know, think we should do more about suicide prevention. Yeah, yeah, all right, all right, suicide prevention. Some think we should do something about aged care. Okay, we'll do something about aged care. But none of it's actually cohesive and there's no institution building. There's no sort of big vision tying it all together in a policy sense. It's literally throwing money at problems and not in a particularly sophisticated way. And frankly, Van, there are actually cuts to institutions. So we'll get into some of the detail about what's been cut because there have been cuts. And, and uh, you know, Stephen Kukulis, uh who's the kook on um, Twitter. Who's who, an economist and we love you. Yeah, a great, great economist, um, has pointed out that for all the talk of this being a big spending budget, spending in this coming financial year will be much lower than the spending in the previous financial year. So in reality, there's a number of things that the government has cut um, over and above the cuts to Job Seeker and Job Keeper that have already obviously been announced. And let's remember, if, if they are in real terms spending less money in the next 12 months as part of this budget. And and let's just be very clear from the outset, this is an election budget. This is a come on now, pretend that we care budget in order to hit all of their target demographics before an election, which the rumours are growing louder and louder is going to be sooner rather than later. If they're spending less money this year and everything's budgeted for spending in a, in a year beyond that, that gives them time for the next budget to reverse all of that investment as well. So what looks like spending now may not actually be spending in the future. So let, let's break down a few of them. So, you know, the, the headline is always around taxes and what, what taxes people are or aren't going to pay. And people might remember that in the last budget, in the budget before, there was a lot of debate around the level of taxes at different rates. So in the last budget, the government extended what was known as the low low and middle income tax offset. This was essentially up to $1,000 a year for people earning less than $120,000 a year um, that they would get back at the end of a financial year. So not an actual cut to the tax rate, but basically an additional tax rebate. Now, on top of that, People at the higher brackets of tax, so those in the 45, in the 40s, those people would see their rates drop essentially to 30%. So the vast majority of Australians would end up on what was, for, for want of a better term, a flat tax of about 30%. Now, the low and middle income tax offset was due to end. Now, that would have effectively increased the taxes that around three and a half to four million Australians paid next year. Now, of course, Josh Frydenberg, this being an election budget, isn't going to up the uh, taxes on four million people. So they've extended that tax offset. So people will still get another offset uh, in the next uh, tax return that they do. But of course, those tax cuts for the upper brackets, they're locked in. That's a cut to a tax bracket. That means that by 2024, people in the highest levels of income in this country will be paying far less tax, roughly around 28 to $30 billion a year, collectively, less tax. That's quite a, quite a substantial cut. So that's all now baked into this budget. And of course, whoever is in government in two years' time is going to have this same problem around whether or not they are let taxes on the lowest incomes go up at exactly the same time as the biggest cuts to taxes for the people on the highest incomes come in. 
So there is a, there is a structural problem in the tax system in the budget that Josh Frydenberg has essentially glossed over. He's a lot just of kicking the can down the road. Yeah, absolutely. That's really what's going on. And, you know, I think it's time, and looking at Labor's response to the budget, I think we're seeing like a shift in the public discourse in the West where you've got people like Joe Biden going, yeah, let's tax rich people. And it's been hugely popular. Just a, just a clue for anybody who might be in political messaging. Joe Biden was very clear from the outset before he was president that one of his tax demands was increasing, um, was increasing tax rates on the rich and rejecting the sort of trickle-down model of if we give more money to rich people, they'll spend it on creating jobs, which they don't and we've now known that for 40 years and his approval ratings are through the roof just saying and an interesting side note people might remember Matthias Corman who was finance minister under Scott Morrison by the way I love this Ben told me this at 11 o'clock at night and it was sort of like going to a party so Matthias Corman who was the former finance minister who railed against the idea of what he called a death tax during the last election and I'm sure everybody remembers getting a Facebook post from a friend from a friend from a friend of a friend which just seemed to be very much like the exact same campaign that had been run by Trump in America word for word about a death tax and how Labor were going to introduce a death tax and they were going to come and take your car in the middle of the night and cut off the wheels and none, none of which none of which was true Labor had no um, plans for an estate tax an inheritance tax a death tax whatever you want to call it that was simply made up and, and a misinformation campaign but, but the Liberals did media about it oh huge yeah, Frydenberg was like, oh, Labor's going to introduce a death tax. You know, they called it secret taxes and all the rest of it. Now, Matthias Cormann, former finance minister, really at the pointy end of the spear on this misinformation campaign for the Liberal Party, has trundled off to Paris to be head of the OECD. People will remember lots of really scandalous behaviour with Morrison providing private jets and uh, essentially trying to trying to lobby the people who made this decision um, at a massive cost to the Australian taxpayer. Well, Cormann got that job as head of the OECD. So you would think that despite the OECD saying we need to do more climate, we need to do more about inequality, there might be a bit of a shift in their tone. Well, to my surprise and to Vans as well, last night the OECD came out and said that the Western nations, including Australia, need to consider having larger inheritance taxes <laughs> in order to avoid taxes <laughs> on ordinary people and reduce inequality. Now, like when you when you put that into the context of the Australian budget, you can see that really the Liberals, whether they're in government here in Australia or occupying some job in a, in a global um, organisation, they are just about political survival, right? At the end of they the day. They are just about political survival. They will say anything for you to vote for them. They will put their name to literally anything to target the narrow slices of demographics which they can accumulate into an election winning formula. And they only care about winning by one seat. The days of we've got to have a mandate and a large majority have gone. They just want to cling to power and they will do anything anything at all to do it and they propose things and make commitments and pledges that never come to pass ben well let's let's look at some of those commitments and pledges that they've made in this budget 
um, and we can assess whether or not they're likely to come to pass. So there's extra money uh, for aged care in the budget. This was leaked that it would be 10 billion. It's 17 billion uh, over four years. Um, and it includes an extra 80,000 home care packages. Uh, they haven't done what the Royal Commission said that they should do. So the Royal Commission said they should have staffing ratios. Yep, and so the home care package is great, 80,000 home care packages. But the Royal Commission said you needed 100,000. And the Royal Commission also said you needed them sooner rather than later. I mean, this is the thing about aged care. Aged care is not a can you can kick down the road because the people who are not being serviced in aged care now may not be there in a year, two years when these funding pledges come to And let's be really clear, the extra funding doesn't kick in, and this is, I think, to your point, Van, until 2023. So, you know, it's 2021 now. We're asking people in aged care to wait another two years for extra funding. The, the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation, the Nurses Union of Australia, has made the point that the amount that's being uh, put on the table is half what the Royal Commission said. Uh, it's delayed by a further two years. Um, keep in mind, the Royal Commission was announced, what, two years ago. Uh, so you're talking about nearly a five-year gap between identifying a problem and actually doing anything about it, tangible about it. But also what they're doing is not what was re- recommended to Absolutely. do. So there was this great hoo-ha about, oh, yes, well, we will have a Royal Commission into aged care because there has been scandal after scandal in the sector. And when we talk about scandals in aged care, we're talking about people at the most vulnerable time of their lives in an emotionally charged situation for entire families and households and you know people going through the aged care experience as my mum who's 79 says you know old age is not for the weak you know it is it's a tough tough time and when these scandals break we've seen violence in the sector we've seen those terrible meals where they were basically feeding people like gunk you know like Mm. lack of care health problems physical pain and discomfort all of the things associated with caring shortfalls it has been a massive scandal and yet the specific recommendations to ameliorate those problems are not what the government's picked up on and the staff to patient ratios is a really crucial one because Ben and I live in Victoria as we talk about endlessly because we're Victorian and <laughs> and everybody does it's like being a vegan or a cyclist being a Victorian so the thing is that in Victoria, we still have a state aged care system where the government owns some aged care facilities. And that's given the state government the leverage to impose mm. better standards on the sector. So we do have higher staff to patient ratios and we do have better food and the government guarantees and underwrites the care relationship. And what it meant during coronavirus, and we've talked about this before, was that if you are in a state system as an aged care patient, you are much more likely to avoid infection and survive. If you were in a privately run facility, that's where the actual concentration of coronavirus deaths were in Victoria because there were these caring gaps. And the solution is quite obvious that state investment should be in state 
care. But again, we've mm. got this situation where they're pumping heaps of money into a sector which is pr- overwhelmingly privately controlled in this country now. And what we've seen again and again, whether it's aged care or childcare or anything else, is generally when the government pump more money into that privately controlled sector, the private providers take a larger slice of the money. And if you don't have obligations like staff to patient ratios, Mm. one of the things that is in the budget around aged care is they're going to um, mandate an increase in the hours of care. Yeah, the minutes. That, the minutes of the care. The minutes of care. That doesn't solve the problem. The exact words were the minutes. The of minutes care. of care. And it, it, this new, you know, injection is only going to work out to an extra ten dollars spent on each patient per day, and it's like. $10 doesn't buy you a meal at McDonald's and uh, $10 and doesn't buy, $10 does not buy you an hour of caring labor. Like this yeah. is not this is literally like four packets of Tim Tams on a coal special. Like that's or, or three cans of good beans. Like this is not well, an it, investment in in patient care. No, and it, and and it goes to the heart of the fundamental Weaknesses in the structure of the budget is that there's lots of handouts to private organisations, private providers, uh, but none of those structural, as you said before, those institutional elements that are required to reshape the economy to make it more sustainable uh, are in place. And the aged care one is a really good example because we've just had this Royal Commission. We've just had this long period of time thousands of thousands of submissions lots of evidence testimony you know experts putting in their two cents worth um, and really the whole purpose of that was to reform the sector and here is the big unveiling of the Morrison government's reforms its grand response to this and really it's it's just a bit more money uh, and tinkering around the edges um, when what was recommended was wholesale reform and I I, I can understand the anger in the sector um, that it feels like it's invested all this time and energy in this Royal Commission process. And at the end of the day, I'm sure there are people asking themselves, well, why did we go through all of that pain? Why did we delay any action, like any really meaningful action to this point in the hope of true reform um, if this is all we're going to get? Now, look, we, we need to go on to some other things, though. Yeah, I just want to make the point that childcare... Uh, is in a similar situation. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we do need wholesale reform of the childcare sector. Again, Ben and I think it should be run by the state as part of an integrated education program, complementing and preparing kids for uh, infants' primary and secondary and tertiary education, which is what they do in Scandinavian countries and have the highest education outcomes in the world. But childcare is another one where private providers have been allowed to come into the sector and there's even though all this money is being pumped in in the budget and one unambiguously good thing 15 hours of universal preschool a week that's good yeah. that's great but the concern of uh, advocates for the sector and for early childhood education is that this money typically just goes to further line the pockets of the private providers and there are like some big franchises in these spaces now yeah there are and i think I think the the detail on this announcement is is another one that highlights this problem, right? Because you're talking about 1.7 billion dollars um, in childcare, two billion dollars for kinder. Now in kinder, you've got the state governments 
essentially being the regulators and being the deliverers of that. So there is some element of um, mitigation when it comes to the handouts to, to um, I guess, chains and private providers. But there but are... there's supervision and, and yeah. accountability within that sector. Exactly, because at the end of the day, they're regulating that. What you're finding, though, with childcare is that it's much more federally run. Um, and frankly, anybody who's got kids in childcare can tell you the fees go up, the fees go up, and there's not necessarily any better standard of care or any any better standard of education. Or better standards of pay for the actual workers. Oh, yeah. Well, ask any worker. Their, their wages are not going up. They are, they are usually anchored to the award, to the minimum standards. And even this, this announcement, this $1.7 billion, is only going to help 250,000 Australian families. Now, in a population of over 25 million, that's not as many families as actually use childcare or need childcare. And once again, the Morrison government has structured a program whereby the cap comes off for the very wealthiest, but you've got to have more than one child in order to access this program, in order to get the full benefit. So it's really looking at, as you said before, their electoral coalitions. Where where do the Liberals and Nationals get significant support when it comes uh, politically from families? They, they get it from families that have more than one child and they get it from high-income families. So they're appealing to those people to cement them in and to bring back some that might have broken off over the last few months with all of the scandals that really demonstrate a lack of family values. Well, yeah, this is a thing. So I want to talk about how this is, you know, their great women's budget. I mean, we heard a lot uh, from Scott Morrison when there were, you know, hundreds of thousands of women marching around Australia complaining against his gender problem. And Scott Morrison announced we were going to have a prime minister for women and it was all, you know, it was all, it was basically as if he painted the house pink and went, look, I care about girls. Has anybody heard from the prime minister for women? No. And there was a very revealing photo. I shared it on my Facebook yesterday uh, of their pre-budget photo because Morrison, of course, can't do anything if a photographer, if a photographer is not present. Yeah. Morrison hasn't done it. And to be fair, he probably hasn't done it anyway. But it's a photo of, you know, pre-budget talk. And it's David Littleproud, for instance, the deputy leader of the Nationals. McCormack, I don't expect anyone to know who he is, but he's the deputy prime minister and leader of the National Party. He is not Brennan O'Connor. They are different. Persons. They are different. They, I've Michael seen them McCormack, in the same room. Michael McCormack is so anonymous as an MP that the press gallery keep mixing up his photo with that of poor Brendan O'Connor, who is a good comrade of ours and an excellent person. Anyway, um, so McCormack is the leader of the Nationals and there's also Frydenberg. And I've got to say, Ben, just as a note, Frydenberg is not backward in coming forward about his own prime ministerial ambitions. Mm. And, of course, his big budget speech last night was his audition. And it was just – it was a charisma-free zone, I've got to say. Like, I remember having the discussion with you and I tweeted about it saying he's sort of like a weak tea that's supposed to put you to sleep but isn't even quite strong enough to do that. Yeah, he, he looked bored by his own speech. 
like, just can't nail the landing, really, or the delivery. Poor old, poor old Joshy, as they call him. Like just really, like midway through when he started talking about infrastructure and manufacturing, I genuinely thought he was he was going to go to sleep. There was a cutaway to McCormack who looked like he was already asleep. And you would think that, which is McCormack's leadership style, obviously, because no one knows who he is. And you would think that for a guy, who's, I say that we're in his seat at the yeah. moment. I just want to say that, and yeah, and for a guy who's supposedly like he the big thing for the Nationals is always about regional infrastructure you know you would think that would be the point where he'd be the most excited and yet there they are nodding off you know yeah so the fourth person in the photo is obviously Morrison with the big smirk on and it's black it's a black and white photo they're all at a table there's an Australian flag behind them and it's men with other men doing manly things and it was just it's so iconic of what the problem is that you have these four extremely dull like white men in their suits deciding the fate of the nation and it's like do you know Australia doesn't look like this one it never looked like this but we used to go along with the pretense and we're not doing that anymore where is the Prime Minister for Women who I believe is Maurice Payne but we haven't seen a lot of her so all of this hoo-ha about we're going to do things for women let's talk about what that means one Frydenberg had the audacity to get up in Parliament with his speech and say oh for the past seven years the Liberal Party have been committed to keeping women safe and it's like mate you can't even keep women safe in Parliament House no one is buying this. Their great domestic violence initiative is not what the providers actually wanted. So they've got like a $5,000 grant to assist women who are fleeing violence. Every expert in this space in the world has been saying we need to keep women in the house women should not have to flee domestic violence authorities should be removing perpetrators from those situations because one of the reasons why women don't leave is because they don't have the financial support or the networks or the friendship groups or the neighborhoods or any of the kind of security that they need You know, the union movement has pushed for paid domestic violence leave so women can go through, who are in a domestic violence situation, can go through the process of organising legal protection for themselves and for their children if they have them. Like, again and again, we have said women should are empowered when they remain in place. Mm. But no, like, it's like this willfulness of, of the Morrison government that any expert in a policy space is like, you know, like a contagious communist and if you listen to their advice, you'll get communism germs and, you know, like sprout one of those cute little hats with the red star on them or something. And just, again, aged care, not listening to the experts. Domestic violence, not listening to the experts. Putting money at it, but not in the Child right care, way. not listening Child to the care. experts. And, and suicide prevention... You know, there was this very conspicuous gap in their discussion because, you know, they really care about suicide. And let's be yeah. very honest. One of the reasons they really care about suicide is suicide is a phenomenon that affects a lot of white men. That mm. there is, there's an issue, there's a gender, is one of those very few things where there's a gendered difference. Mm. And there's a really high proportion, and comparatively, of men who commit suicide rather than women. And that's tragic and that's awful. Yeah. And there's also this vast amount of research about how attitudes towards masculinity yeah. and, you know, this feeling um, of a lot of men of not being able to reach these idealised standards of masculinity contribute to suicidal ideation and feelings and these... Like, this is part of a, a problem that feminists have been trying to advocate, you know... Yeah. For repair with and salt. But the really conspicuous thing, they talked about veteran suicides good. We should talk about that again and again and again until veteran suicide stop. But they didn't mention LGBTQIA Australians. 
And yet we know that LGBTQIA Australians have some of the largest rates of like suicidal thinking and um, self-harm and self-harm of any group. You look at transgender Australians who are subject to the most horrific stigmatisation and marginalisation and invisible in the policy announcement. So there was a study that was published in the Star Observer that was done over the year of coronavirus. Two in five LGBTQIA Australians suffered with suicidal thinking over the course of coronavirus and feelings of isolation and exclusion. And and we should be clear, when they talked about suicide, they did mention some specific groups. They did. This was the thing. They mentioned children, they mentioned veterans, but not LGBTQIA Australians. Yeah, that's right. Because presumably anybody who's like... Um, says that trans rights are human and, rights is a communist and you'll grow that hat. Yeah. So, look, and one of the other things that people have pointed out is that the, the spending on women in this so-called women's budget amounts to about $6 per woman in Australia. Uh, this was Hugh Remington tweeted something about this last night. I think it was around $6, he was saying. Uh, and, and that the vast majority of that is actually in the childcare announcements. And it, even that, to me, is an entirely inappropriate way to suggest this is a women's budget. Yeah, because if we're spending money on children, we're spending money on you. Yeah, but... Because you're a chick, right? Chicks like kids. Chicks like kids, Ben. Surely childcare is something for the whole family. And the other thing in that childcare announcement is there was no mention of the educational outcomes for children. No. In... in in most of the rest of the OECD, it's recognised that childcare is both a function of helping both partners in a fam- in a adult partners in a family. It's almost like fathers and parents too. And and also helping the child get good educational outcomes, which in turn helps the society have a better outcome. Which brings me to the training. Edu- You're bringing oh, that I'm was a beautiful training segue. Education. Just, I give you a bag of pearls for your brilliant segue there. Be- because the other thing they've made big noises about here is training, and to a, to a lesser extent, they've tried to smudge that into a sense that they're investing in education education which they're not they're no. actually cutting money in education so they've announced this training package and if everybody has the right to be cynical about job creation and training packages uh, with the liberal government because typically they announce them to great fanfare and they fail remember the path program oh yeah yes the path program where michaela cash said we're going to give money to employers to employ young people for four dollars for four dollars an hour, an hour. And strangely enough, they didn't really take off. Then we had Job Maker, yeah. which was announced during the pandemic. And there were going to be 450,000 jobs. Ben, how many jobs did they create through the Job Maker scheme? I can't remember if it was 608 or 506. No, it was 608. So it was yeah. barely over 600, despite they promising 450,000. Now they're talking about how they're going to invest all this money. They've invested all this money in apprenticeships. No, they haven't. They've restored a small amount of money from the vast amount of money they cut from apprenticeships and have been steadily cutting over the past few years. They did not even mention TAFE. No. TAFE, the the technical training sector, did not get a mention in the budget. Because, and this is, again, comes back to those structural issues we've been talking about, is that the... The Morrison government doesn't believe in TAFE, the public provision of training and technical training and education. It is going to see a lot of this extra money go to private providers. Uh, And frankly, as you say, it's just restoring some of the things. I keep looking at this budget and I keep thinking, 
But when Morrison was treasurer, he cut that. When Morrison was treasurer, he cut that. When Morrison was treasurer, he undermined that. And now he's just putting some band-aids over the things that he's already broken. Yeah, like they announced there are going to be 5,000 new public service jobs. Right? Oh, right. Yeah, right. Except the CPSU came out and went, but you cut 13,000 public service jobs. So these jobs that are going to be created do not fix the shortfall. And let's be very clear about why they're pumping money into training now or, or you know, supposedly creating mm. these great training opportunities. The way that the Liberals have gotten away with the vast amounts of money they've taken out of the public education sector when it comes to technical training and apprenticeships and TAFE and everything else, um, and this is in, why do they take money out of these things so they can deliver tax cuts to the richest Australians who are their base? That is entirely why they tear apart institutions and redirect money to, to tax cuts for the people who fundamentally ideologically support them. The problem with doing that at the at the moment is that how Australia has gotten away with this is that rather than training our own people to do jobs we have imported skilled migrants right that's how they've been doing a bit of a bait and switch so we can take the money out of training because we'll just import skilled migrants who have been trained elsewhere that's not happening anymore so we have one of the lowest rates of immigration i think in our history because of coronavirus and because scott morrison didn't build quarantine centers that there's been this huge um interruption to our skill flow basically that we're just not getting the workers who can do the jobs so now we've got a problem because we don't know when things are going to be sorted out with coronavirus internationally even if scott morrison ever works out how to deliver a vaccine program and our rates of vaccination are still absolutely appalling. Mm. The complete misconception of how the vaccine system would work. Oh, we get GPs and chemists oh. to do it, except it has to be refrigerated. They don't have those facilities and we're not going to give them enough doses to actually justify the expense of the facilities. Like, it's a total, total carnival. And I just want done. to say that in the budget, the assumptions around the vaccine, reopening borders, all those things are truly heroic. They're fanciful. Truly, they are totally... They're more fanciful than their usual wage assumptions, which we'll get to later on. But there's just no way they're going to meet those. So you're absolutely right, Van. Yeah. And, I mean, this is the situation. Because they haven't done the basic spending that they had to do, we're not getting the skilled migrants. Mm. And, of course, now there's a skill shortage and they're dancing around panicking, going, well, what are we going to do? And I just I do not trust them. No one has any reason to trust them on this issue, especially because they're not talking about time. How on earth are you going to provide comprehensive technical education if you're not actually using the comprehensive technical education system? Oh, look, I just don't think they will. And and frankly, you know, again, the devil's in the detail here. Apprenticeships are about more than investing in the first year. Apprenticeships are a multi-year process. Uh, and we've seen in the last round of announcements around apprenticeships, the problems that they created with this, this sort of half-baked approach of, oh, well, we're going to have, you know, 10,000 new first-year apprentices. Well, that's great. What happens in the second year? What happens in the third year? Because mm. these are not one-off uh, These are not one-off payments, right? These are ongoing requirements. Um, look, we need, to, we need to talk about some other elements of this as well. Because yeah, universities, they're going to fund 30,000 more places. Places are not the issue in universities. The issue is staff. And Univers- funding. And funding. And we say that um, as people who've been engaging with the university campus for the past, you know, the work that I've been doing, which brings me to Wagga. And amazing, in Michael McCormack's 
electorate. What is Michael McCormack doing for this university in particular, which is losing courses, which is hemorrhaging staff when the departments here lost all of their casual staff recently? Like, this is the fundamental problem in the university sector is that they mass casualised actual teaching staff and then when coronavirus happened and the international students disappeared, there was less money in the sector, it's casuals who've just been shoved out of the system and everything is a a resource disaster. And now on top of that, they're going to get almost 10% cut. Another 10% cut. So it's a 9% cut in the budget to university funding. But there are going to be 30,000 more university places. Well, this is the thing. When you look at... I saw somebody had uh, looked at the education spending tables in the budget. And when you look at the comparison on what's spent on universities versus what's spent on private schools, and at the risk of us going down a total rabbit hole here, I do have to raise this because I think it's... I actually think it's appalling that we're going to... The Commonwealth government in the next financial year is going to spend 40% more on private schools than it spends on universities. And in the forward estimates, we will get to a point where the Commonwealth government is spending 60% more on private schools than it is on universities. Now, I know there are a lot more private schools than there are universities in this country, but the point is universities require more infrastructure. They service a higher level of need. They provide opportunities for students of all backgrounds and financial capability. And they actually take people to the next level of skill development, of education, of opportunity. And the idea that somehow or another, the Commonwealth government is going to pump an extra 60% into private schools. Like, I just... I shudder at the idea that we're going to end up with a King's College that's better funded than a Deakin University or a Charles Sturt University or, a, you know, or, or a Macquarie University. Oh, but St. Poshos really needs the rowing tank, Ben. I mean, come or on. Or Murdoch University. Why on earth would we be teaching scientists or communicators or architects or doctors or engineers properly when all they do is keep us alive, save the planet, build bridges and help us communicate with one another when the St. Poshos rowing team really needs the extra practice i am sitting on my hands and i am breathing in very deeply and the dog knows that i am angry but i will keep it very calm very calm it's a real i think it's a real travesty and a misallocation of uh public money speaking about a misallocation or rather non-allocation of money despite the fact that it was the art sector that took the worst hit during coronavirus there will be no additional money for the art sector. There is no institution building there. There is no vision um, as, of the arts as employers or community members or helpers or any of those things. Nope. Again, we have been forgotten. Can I just also add, there's two things I want to point out about um, superannuation that I think are important um, because there, there, was a, there was a win there for low-paid workers For years, we've been campaigning to remove the minimum payment threshold before you got paid super. That's that you had to earn $450 a month from from an employer. So if you had multiple jobs and you were trying to make ends meet that way, you could actually fall well under that with any given employer and end up not getting paid superannuation at all. That's been removed. And actually, this will benefit women because women are predominantly uh, the people in these categories of casual, part-time, multiple job holders. Um, And 
But at the same time, <laughs> at the same time, they're still trying to use superannuation as a piggy bank for wealthy people. And that's to say that they're going to increase the amount you can withdraw from super if you've made voluntary contributions in order to buy a house. Now, if you've got 50 grand to put away in your super account uh, as extra voluntary contributions, chances are you're not struggling at the bottom end of the income scale. Yeah, having a cool 50 grand to flap around is not really the common experience of poverty. And really what this is about is this is giving people on higher incomes a tax advantage, another tax advantage for their savings to help them get into property even quicker than they already are. So that's a bit of a that's a bit of a, a, a misnomer or a misuse of that system as well. Um, I think it's worth pointing out uh, that we'll be spending 27 billion a year. Uh, now keep in mind the total total spending annual spending is just under 500 uh, is sorry is around 600 billion a year. We'll be spending 27 billion a year on the defense force. So we can look forward to more drones and submarines that don't work. Uh, and I think it's also really important to point out uh, that the the real hidden nasty in the budget, in my view, is that wages are going to go backwards. Wages are going to go backwards in real terms. So the cost of living will continue to go up. It's not going to be huge increases in the cost of living, but it will go up faster than wages will over the next two or three years. That means that for ordinary, everyday people who go to work, um, in whatever capacity you go to work, you will have less money to spend on things. At the same time, the government is predicting economic growth with threes and fours in front of it. So, you know, I can't recall a time where Australia has said, we're going to have economic growth, we're going to grow the economic pie, but we're actually going to reduce the share of it that goes to working people. Because that's effectively what this budget is saying will happen over the next four years, every year over the next four years. I just want to add, because we, we've got to come to the end, um, that welfare spending, there's, you know, despite... Despite people's experiences of sudden unemployment, a lot of people who visited a Centrelink probably for the first time in their working lives over the course of coronavirus and had that really horrific experience of what it's like being on the dole in this country, despite the fact that advocates have again and again and again and again said we've got to raise the rate of Newstart um, or Job Seeker, as it's now called, um, the, they're keeping the very minor increase, the $3.325 yeah. or whatever it is a day increase but they're not going anywhere near the minimum $25 a day increase, which is what welfare advocates have been saying. And so... And they're tightening or strengthening, in their language, mutual obligations. Mutual obligation, which means work for the doll and forced labour and not actually job programs um, and actually programs that 
take jobs out of communities because if there's a project that is worth putting uh, work for the dole recipients on, it means there should be paid jobs in that project. Mm. So if you put work for dole recipients there, that means you take out the workers who otherwise would be paid award wages with proper working conditions to do that labour. And that's just going to continue. So imagine, imagine if the government decided to fund those programs, so the actual work that was needed at, at the proper award rate, rather than use work for the dole. And, and they could fund that out of maybe some of these top-end tax cuts or the extra money that they're going to have to put aside for, for people getting tax advantages through manipulation of the super at the top end. You yeah, know, imagine and imagine all the small businesses that would reap the rewards of having people who are being paid properly spending money in local yeah. economies. It would be fantastic. The other thing I wanted to acknowledge was, despite the fact that we are living through a climate emergency, uh, investment in actual climate mitigation strategies is comparatively minor. The government are in denial. They're talking about investment in uh, carbon capture and hydrogen. And gas. And gas and uh, investing in gas is not helping the environment. Um, but there are going to be these regional hubs, and they're going to do some ocean cleanup. But there's no institutional vision. There's no, no systemic policy. There's no whole of government response to climate change. And as Ben and I found out when we went to the Paris Climate Conference, which I love reminding everybody we did because we totally went. Like repeatedly, the position of the Australian government, which was represented by Greg Hunt, um, was just that some miracle technology would turn up. If some Someone would invent a miracle technology, a carbon capture technology, which would mean all the problems went away. And they're still believing in this magical box of beans that will turn up, oh, yeah, there'll be a technological solution and we don't need to change anything. We don't need to change patterns of consumption or manufacturing or anything else. And that's baked into the budget. And you had people like Ketan Joshi, who's really good, um, who writes about environmental policy stuff and climate action on Twitter, going... Like, what century is this? Like, what is going on? I think it's important to acknowledge that the Morrison government is essentially the alien conspiracy theorists of the pyramids when it comes to climate change. You know, they simply think that there's that it's a miracle technology and therefore it, it must have come down from the sky somehow. And clearly that's going to happen with climate change. What will happen is there'll be some miracle technology that will save the planet. And in the meantime, what's really important is that we maximize the the outcome for people who own shares in gas companies yeah and and frankly you know all this talk around gas this is not just poor um, climate science it's poor economics you know we have failed fundamentally to maximize the national outcome when it comes to gas I get so angry about this because effectively what has happened is the Morrison government has allowed multinational corporations to make billions and billions of dollars out of our gas reserves, selling them to the rest of the world at the same time as jacking up the price of gas here in Australia and making it harder for domestic job creation and households to use gas. So not only not only when they talk about gas are they sabotaging environmental and climate change outcomes, they're actually just transferring our sovereign wealth to multinational corporations. And they talk about it as though somehow or another they're doing everyone this grand and great favour. Like, it is economic and climate change sabotage and should be called out. You know, we've got companies talking about importing gas to Australia because the price is cheaper to buy Australian gas from Japan and bring it here. This is 
a nonsense and insanity. And they're oh, tinkering with the pipes and having a new um, transfer process. Like, it's all a nonsense. It's all a nonsense. It will not solve the economic problem and it certainly won't solve the climate problem. So, I, yeah, I, I get quite fired up oh, about Well, that. my issue is here we are waiting for the magic beans technology miracle that's going to solve all our climate, climate problems. But we're not making that investment in science. We're not making that investment no. in research. And we're cutting 9% from universities. So we're waiting for another country that does spend money on those things to come up with this miracle solution. And you might think, oh, well, they have introduced a patent box, right? So a patent box is where essentially companies can say, we've come up with this new idea we want to register it with this patent box so that if we can commercialize it we get a tax discount another tax discount for companies but uh, in other countries they've said yep register with the patent box we'll give you a 10 percent tax rate on anything that comes out of this new invention right and they've done that not every sector or a huge range of sectors in australia morrison friedenberg has announced that they'll do it at 17 percent right so higher than everybody else and they'll only do it for biomedical science. So, so you're talking about in Australia, predominantly very large companies, your CSLs, your ResMeds, these big billion dollar companies who are the ones who actually come up with patents because they can afford to make the investment, getting a tax discount. Nothing in the climate space. They, they've said, oh, we'll talk, we'll talk to renewable energy about how we might extend it to them. Like, as you say, we're now going to rely on other countries to give us their tech when we recognize the process that needs to happen. We understand what needs to be put in place to make this viable. We're just not doing it. They're just choosing not to do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's the the Kit Kat and Caboodle. So obviously there are lots of other things in there are lots of other things in the budget we could talk about. These are some of our favorite issues. Obviously, you know, low wages, lack of economic vision, lack of social planning, a policy framework that looks at the next 10 minutes and the next election, not the next 10 years, the future or whether Australia will even be a thing. Given our last episode we talked about the saber rattling against the Chinese, so we may not even be here next year. But if you'd like to know more or you want to do some more reading, I appreciate this stuff can get pretty dry. But if you want to know more about it, go and have a look at what the ACTU, Australian Unions, have put out if you're interested in the in the labour and workplace conditions and wages side of it. Look at Per Capita, who is one of our favourite think tanks who uh, write about economic policy and the economic fallout of this. The Parenthood, which is the family advocacy organisation, has got really great analysis too. The Australia Institute is another one that's done some good work, as has Mikel. Um, Industry Super Australia have got some good stuff out as well if you're interested in the superannuation and retirement side of things. Uh, and there's a number of others as well. There are some excellent writers on this. Obviously, Van um, will have lots to say on her Twitter account. Uh, and people like John Falzon have already written about the the removing the knife halfway out of someone's back still leaves a knife in their back, which is a really interesting um, and, and beautiful piece of writing on this uh, budget. Uh, look at people like Emma Dawson, who leads per capita, Stephen Kukoulos. If you're interested in the debt and deficit side of things, he's got some really interesting analysis on that. Uh, 
there's lots of really good uh, people out there. Who some some great social it. media from politicians includes um, our friend Jed Carney, who you know has because she's a former nurse has particularly excellent policy insight around aged care issues. Um, Joe Ryan, who's another MP, has done some really great simple Facebook posts taking people through some of the the big themes here as well. And of course, Labor's uh, Treasury spokesperson Jim Chalmers has put something out. If you if you're not on his email list, uh, it's a really uh, good synopsis of the hidden nasties in there, and, and that wages issue is right right up front as well. So look, Van, let's get some let's get some unadulterated good news if we could, because I think I think the people could use it. Yes. So the Menindee fish kill. We all remember those horrific photographs uh, of. I mean, this a million dead fish. A million dead fish terrifying river mismanagement another problem that the liberals just couldn't you know really get it together to solve um and how horrible that was and those images of those fish and of course we're talking about murray cod the murray cod is one of the largest freshwater fish in the world it has an unbelievably important um symbolic and spiritual connotation for um first nations people who live around the area and these massive like narrative and artistic practices and cultural symbolism that are invested in that fish and the idea that you know it would be dying by the millions is just absolutely tragic Mm. so what happened when that fish call was taking place you literally had um, people in the community racing down to the river and physically saving the fish that they could find yeah Um, some of these were taken to a fishery Mm -hmm. a local fishery about 200 fish we were told Mm. Um, and the fishery working with a group of uh, uh, kids from First Nations backgrounds um, in this amazing uh, like rebreeding program have managed to rebreed 60,000 fish which is a lot less than a million but they have released them into the river and they also did a a spiritual releasing where the local indigenous community released a, a first batch of sort of 200 fish to repopulate the river so it's it's a fantastic thing and it was backed by the New South Wales government credit where credit is due unusually yeah, um, yeah. for the New South Wales government you might enjoy my article in the Guardian this week everyone um, but yes so they are restocking the fish there is a program there the importance of that fish has been recognised and that's a really nice good news story from the area where Ben and I have been staying that's fantastic. Well, that is the week on Wednesday. If we have, if you have uh, other sources of interesting budget analysis that you think people should know about, please do uh, comment and please do uh, leave those links when you share our podcast this week. Uh, Once again, we want to thank everybody for listening in. Uh, It has been a slightly longer episode because it's obviously a budget special. Uh, It's been fantastic to be here. We'd like to thank Nathan, who has been sitting here so patiently. Thank you so much, Nathan. And has been so good because I I do need to point out there is an open packet of Tim Tams next to Nathan that he has not been eating in order to preserve the sound quality of this particular recording because he is a saint of a man. So... Once again, do share uh, the week on Wednesday. Do share with other people the links to interesting budget analysis. Uh, Let's make sure that people understand these details because they are important. Um, But let's remember what it's about. It's about building a stronger uh, community. It's about having better outcomes for people. It's about making sure that every Australian has the dignity uh, that we should expect. So... 
Don't forget to listen to The Weekend Wrap and don't forget to catch Van's article in The Guardian this week. And I've now got a regular slot on Marcus Paul in the morning on 2SEM, 2SEM, 2SEM Sydney every Tuesday morning around 8 o'clock and Ben turns up on Apple FM on Bacchus Marsh Radio about once a month. Yeah, the fourth Thursday of every month. So, yeah, look at us and our amazing <laughs> broadcast careers, and we owe it all to you. All so, to you. another big thank you to Nathan. You can now get into the Tim Tams and have a great day, everyone. Love you, Vanny. I love you too. Bye. Bye. Bye.